Our scripture lesson today is taken from the second book of Kings, chapter 22. I'm going to start at verse 8 and then skip forward a little bit and pick up reading through verse 20. The high priest Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it. Then Shaphan the secretary came to the king and read it aloud to the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikum son of Shaphan, Agbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and the king's servant Isaiah, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So the priest Hilkiah Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to the prophetess Huldah, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She resided in Jerusalem in the second quarter where they consulted her. She declared to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord. I will indeed bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have abandoned me and have made offerings to other gods, so that they have provoked me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But as to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring in this place. They took the message back to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. So far in this summer series on ordinary people who are often obscure in the Bible, 
We have covered three people from the Old Testament, Lot's wife, Paltiel, and Orpah. Each has displayed a deep love that has marked their brief appearance in Scripture. In the case of Lot's wife, the love of two adult daughters about to be destroyed in the city in which they stay behind and toward which she looks in solidarity with them. In the case of Paltiel, the love for a wife, even as she was taken from him and given to the king. And in the case of Orpah, the love of the land of her birth in which she chooses to remain. In these ordinary people, we have seen extraordinary love. In Huldah, the person who is the focus of today's sermon, we see a different kind of love, a love for the pages of the book and the words written on those pages which she attests are God's word and which eventually become a, bar, a part of the Bible that we read. The backstory story is this. After the people of Israel entered the promised land, they are initially led by kings Saul, David, and Solomon. Upon Solomon's death, the potential heirs fight, the overall quality of leadership declines, and the nation divides between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Of all the kings who ruled either in the north or in the south, only two are praised in Scripture, Hezekiah and Josiah, both of whom ruled in the south. Josiah is only eight years old when he comes to the throne. Following the brief and disastrous reigns of his father Ammon and his grandfather Manasseh. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, when he is now 24, he orders the temple to be repaired and renovated. In the course of making repairs, workers discover a copy of a book of laws that had probably been hidden away for safekeeping during the reign of one of Josiah's corrupt predecessors. The book passes from the workers to the court secretary who brings it to the king and reads it before the king. When the king, Josiah, hears the book read aloud, he is greatly distressed. He realizes that the book is an indictment of the past religious misdeeds of his people as well as a promise of judgment that will occur in the present and in the future. Unlike many rulers, Josiah immediately dispatches a delegation to seek an oracle, an interpretation from a prophet concerning the text that he has just heard. The delegation, which is large and prominent and contains a lot of names that I spent all morning trying to get the pronunciations of, <laughs> the delegation visits Huldah a prophet who's married to Shalem, a keeper of the king's wardrobe in the king's court. Huldah is the only female prophet to appear in the books of Samuel and Kings. 
And the fact that she is female in a traditionally male role, role draws no mention. This silence may reflect that for a brief moment in the history of the people of Israel, Huldah serves as one who is judged not on the basis of the identity of her gender or the color of her skin, but on the content of her character, on her prophetic ability to speak and interpret a word from the Lord. While her husband focuses on the outer accoutrements of the king's attire, Huldah focuses on the inner character of the king as he makes decisions and rules the people of Judah. Huldah indeed confirms to King Josiah that the message read in his presence means what he thinks it means. That his people had broken their covenant with God in the past. That God will respond with consequences in the present and future. And yet that because Josiah himself has heard this word and repented, he will die in peace and be personally spared witnessing the divine consequences being carried out. When Huldah confirms that the words that have been read to the king are indeed the word of the Lord, she becomes the first person in the Bible to declare a written text to actually be the word of the Lord. She thus begins a process called canonization in which over the centuries certain writings emerge from the people of Israel and later from the new, from the church They are accepted by the people of God as being authoritative and they are eventually brought together over several centuries as the Bible. The Bible that rests in our pews, that sits on our nightstands and coffee tables, that infuses the hymns we sing and the prayers we say and the sermons we receive or deliver. Even though there is little or no hope in what Huldah tells Josiah concerning what will happen, over the next eight years, Josiah institutes reforms that rid the land of the artifacts of idolatry and that centralize worship in Jerusalem. Josiah also reinstitutes the Passover. After his death, it is said of Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Josiah proved to be a leader who did the right thing because it was the right thing, not because he feared consequences or expected rewards, political or divine. And Huldah is a religious leader who is willing to say what needs to be said to someone who has the power 
to do what needs to be done. Huldah thus comes to us as one who loves the text of Scripture, which she boldly and wisely interprets for her day in the presence of the king. It is to that love and to her willingness to interpret that I want to turn and devote the remainder of this sermon. Thank you for listening to all this leading up to it. I know it's hard. (laughs) When I was ordained in 1980, Presbyterian minister Frederick Beatner was an enormously popular writer. In one of his books, he describes the frustration that people experience reading the Bible, the book that Huldah and others have bequeathed to us. It not only looks awfully dull, Beekner says, but some of it is. The prophets are wildly repetitious and almost never know when to stop. There are all those begats. There are passages that even Moses must have nodded off over. That's right, that's right. There are the lists of kings, dietary laws, tribes, and tribal territories. There is the sense you have that you know what the Bible is going to say before it says it. There are still more reasons, he says. The barbarities, for instance. The often fanatical nationalism. The passages where the God of Israel is depicted as as interested in other nations only to the degree that he can cause them to whip Israel into shape. God hardening Pharaoh's heart and then clobbering him for hard-heartedness. Or even Jesus of Nazareth. The same Jesus who in one place uses a Samaritan of all people, a member of a hated tribe, as an example of a man who truly loves the neighbor. And in another place is quoted as telling a Canaanite woman who came to him for help that it was not fair for him to throw the children's food to dogs. Beekner concludes, let them who try to start out at Genesis and work their way to Revelation Beware. When I began my ministry, I knew all of this to be true about the Bible. But I also knew that from being exposed to it at an early age by Presbyterian clergy, and then from African-American preachers at the Montreat Youth Conference I attended as a teenager, and then from the study I had done in seminary, I knew that I had fallen in love with the book. Like one falls in love with an intriguing but elusive lover. Even though my primary ministry and my first call was youth ministry, we had great volunteer Sunday school teachers and I was able to teach adults during that hour on Sunday morning. 
I found then what proved later to be true as well. If I offered a class on a book of the Bible, the room would be packed and people would by and large remain for the, for, for the six or eight weeks of the course. But if I offered a class on another topic, faith and politics, science and religion, religion and psychology, enrollment would be about half and then it would dwindle to a handful by the end of the class. In the early 1990s, I started teaching Disciple, a 34-week, two-and-a-half-hour, 17 weeks on the Old Testament and 17 weeks on the New Testament. I taught it here the first four or five years. About 10 years ago, I realized that I had now acquired too much to say and not enough time to say it. So I divided the class in two like Solomon offered to do to the infant and began offering a year on Old Testament followed by a year on the New Testament. Now, I do many things as a minister and I enjoy them all. I really do enjoy nearly everything about the job. But I've long thought that one of the best things I have to offer you all is this course. When I'm teaching up in Havercamp, I can be more of myself, which is not always a good thing, (laughs) than I can be in the pulpit. You can probably be more of yourself around a table in Havercamp with others than sitting in a pew in the sanctuary. I get to know you better. You get to know me better. Most of all, you get to know one another better. Most of all, you get to read and study the Bible in a guided way that helps you to understand it better, but perhaps more importantly, leads you from time to time to be touched by it, to be moved by it to the point that it becomes a part of your life. At home, at work, in military and government service, in parenting and grandparenting, in voting, in organizing, in marching in parades or protests, or in solitude. It can become for you the balm in Gilead to make the wounded In the years I've taught at Westminster, over 350 people have taken at least one of the courses. And if this seems like an obvious lead-in to a commercial, it is. (laughs) This September, I start another round, Old Testament this school year, New Testament next. If you want to know more, come to the informational meeting next week. More than likely, more than likely, you can do this course more successfully than you think and in better balance with your work and volunteer and family responsibilities than you imagine. If Frederick Buechner is eloquent articulating the challenges about the Bible to which Hulda made a significant contribution, a longtime member of our church known now to very few of you, provided an equally eloquent witness 
to the faith out of which the Bible grows and what that faith can provide us and our nation. Margaret Rice was born in Richmond, Virginia in 1921. Her father taught Bible at Union Seminary in that city, but he died when Margaret was 16 months old and her mother was expecting her younger sister. There was no social security or life insurance in those days, but the seminary allowed the family to continue to reside in the faculty home on campus. Her mother became an institution at that seminary, cooking, taking in boarders, providing help with students who were ill or who needed references for papers and sermons. Marge literally grew up on the campus of Union Seminary and down the street at Ginter Park Presbyterian Church. As a young woman, she met Russell Smith, who had grown up as the child of Presbyterian missionaries in the Congo, and who as a young adult had moved to Washington like many of you, in his case to work on the presidential papers at the Library of Congress. They met. They married. They joined Westminster in 1956. She died at Goodwin House in 2009, he in 2012. When her children were going through her papers, they found an editorial from the New York Times that appeared in 1918, three years prior to Marge's birth. At that time, our nation was in the height of World War I, and mired, raging within the fundamentalist, modernist controversy within Protestantism at home. They asked me to read the editorial at their mother's future, at, at their mother's funeral. And here is a portion of what I read. Religion may lack many things, but it must be real. It must be a power touching and ennobling life in all of its manifold aspects. The unpardonable sin in religion is unreality. This is one of the large lessons of the world war. Conventional religion may have sufficed for conventional times, but the war has taught us that conventional is worse than useless in times like these. The literature of the war bears abundant witness to the hunger of the man at the front for real religion. He is face to face with naked life. The trenches will not tolerate pretense. He knows little of nice theological definition. He is suspicious about dogma. He has no patience with ecclesiastical controversy. But he clings passionately and tenaciously to religious realities. Sin is not a theory but a stern face. He has no theory about prayer, but he prays 
as he never did before. In the death of every comrade, he sees an atonement and a redemption. He has rediscovered God as Alpha and Omega. And the God he has found is not an abstraction throned above the stars, but a living reality in the lives of hard-pressed people. A God who is closer than breathing and nearer than the hands and the feet. When Huldah read the words of an old book discovered in a temple renovation, and when she authenticated those words as being a word from God, she began a process that would ultimately lead to the formation of the Bible as Holy Scripture as God's word to us. For Huldah, we can be thankful. And in her wake and in her memory, we can immerse ourselves in the book that she authenticated and loved, the book in which God is not an abstraction throned above the stars, but is a living reality. Closer than breathing and nearer than hands and feet. Amen.